Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. I had a uh, fun experience this past week. Uh, have you ever had the opportunity to meet someone that you have admired from, from afar? And like you get like super nervous about it, because like, what if this person that you really respected and looked up to is like a total jerk or dismissive or a creep? Have you ever had that experience? I had it this past week. I, I was in, in East Austin, and I went to this, like, r- this coffee shop that's like way off the beaten path. And when I walked up, I saw someone, and immediately I knew who they were. And some people don't know him. His name is Malcolm Gladwell. He's an author. He's uh, most pap- uh, famous for writing books uh, like Outliers and The Tipping Point. He also has a couple podcasts that are pretty awesome. So I've like read Malcolm Gladwell for years. I have heard his voice on, the, on these podcasts for like 40 hours, probably in total. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to go over there and just, uh, just thank him. So I went up to him and said, hi, you're Malcolm Gladwell. He's like, yes, I am. Um, and I said, I just want to let you know that like, I really I love your work. I'm so appreciative of all you've done. I actually have used some of your stuff in sermons I give. I'm, I'm a pastor. I've never cited you that I've taken full credit of everything you've said. <laughs> he gave me that dashing smile right there. And I said, that's all. And I just walked off. About an hour later, I was walking out of the coffee shop. And uh, I, was, I didn't want to bother them, so I did like the little nodding tennis game that men do. Like that, where you go. <laughs> so I said, hey, thank you. And he goes, so tell me about your church. And I was like, oh, okay. I did not expect that. So I sat down with him, and I talked about you. I talked about you for a while, and we talked about... Um, storytelling. We talked about the Bible. And because I knew he recently wrote a book about David and Goliath, we talked about the life of David, which was really, really awesome to do. And so we talked about David, and he had had this really interesting thought. Malk and I were talking. We're... um, uh, he shared his point of view on the David and Goliath story, and it was like really intriguing. Uh, he talked about Goliath as like this image of what he kind of tried to coin, I think, is this idea of a blind giant. He's so big, so powerful, he wasn't able to see clearly. But if you look in Scripture, we find that David, the description is that he was ruddy, handsome, and he was clear-eyed. That's how the Bible describes David. He was clear-eyed. He could see clearly. Because maybe he was vulnerable because of his position, because he was so young, he had clarity of vision that Goliath didn't. And that's why he was so victorious. That it was David's vulnerability, not his bigness, but his vulnerability and weakness that allowed him to see clearly. Um, So far in this series, we have talked about David in such a high regard that he was anointed at this young age, that he was favored by God, uh, unexpectedly favored by God. We've seen David last week clear-eyed. He had such courage and faith that he could see that God was at work when no one else could. And then this week, we're going to see a different side of David, that he's not always clear-eyed, that he didn't always give God his vulnerability and in turn receive some strength. So after David defeated Goliath, he uh, was then received by Saul, the king then, and he was received by Saul, 
entrusted to leadership, and the most incredible thing happened. So David at this point, mind you, is around 15 years old. Barely has a driver's license. Do you have a driver's license at 15? So he, he's 15 years old, and David starts to receive leadership from Saul. And Saul gives David the opportunity to lead out, and the more authority that David receives, the more, uh, more successes he has. Uh, the troops loved him. The nation turned to favor with him. Even Saul's own family started to prefer David over Saul. Even the ladies loved him. They wrote a song about him. It was a very unfortunate song in 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Not a great song for a couple reasons. In verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased, displeased him greatly. Uh, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? What we'll find here, and this is true in life, that power and insecurity are a very, very bad combination. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Oh my gosh, and the slides will look awesome today. Sorry about that. Um, you'll have to listen. Uh, so it's just like that. From that time on, Saul had, a, had an eye on David. But this was not a normal eye. He's not seeing clearly. This is the opposite of seeing clearly. Just like that, Saul had the seed of jealousy and comparison given to him. And he planted it in his mind and in his heart and his soul, and he planted that seed. And what we will see in Saul's life is that single seed of jealousy will bear such destructive fruit, not only for Saul's life, but for the whole nation. Rather than seeing David as this young leader with great promise, Saul saw David as a threat. Rather than seeing David's victories as an opportunity for the kingdom to be stronger, for there to be more security, Saul saw his own security go to waste. And the, the ringing of these women's songs still in his ears, he was wondering, why David more than me? You would hope that Saul would see this as great news for the kingdom, that he was leading and serving, but jealousy has a way of skewing our perspective. One of the ways we can tell if we are looking clear-eyed or if we're looking through the lens of jealousy is how we define us and them. That's a clear way of defining, uh, seeing if we are looking through jealousy. Is it on a ledger of us versus them? For Saul, rather than seeing David's victory as our victories, as the kingdom's victories, they were his victories, not mine. Like there is a ledger of Saul and David. And it the victories are in the wrong column. We might be tempted with the same mentality in our own life. Just like, just consider your own thoughts, your own response to things. Maybe in workplace, the victories, that team's victories, not my team's. Or in our family, like how easy is it for us to fall into comparison, even with our own siblings, where their victories, for whatever reason, give us a bad taste. Where if we were honest, when we see them fail, there's a slight delight in us. That's the lens of jealousy and comparison. I mean, even churches, even churches can do this, of comparison. How are we versus the church down the road or whatever it might be? And in our jealousy, we don't see clearly. 
The seed of jealousy didn't take long for it to grow strong. One day while David was playing music for Saul, this jealousy turned into paranoia, like an obsession. And finally it came out into action when Saul was determined to kill David. So while, while David is playing this harp for Saul, Saul decided to hurl a spear at him. And this happened not only once, but twice. David tried a different song, like take requests or something. He doesn't like the music. So why did Saul act this way? Why did that happen? I think that he actually knew that God was up to something, and he felt out of control. This is in verse 12 of that very same chapter. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. This is hard. When it is your time to move on, when it's your time to leave the thing that was once yours and to pass it on, it is hard for us. Especially if, ha- if we have had the seed of jealousy and comparison planted in our hearts. Because every role but one that you play in this world is temporary. Every role but one you play in this world is temporary. And it's hard to step aside. It's hard to release that role when it comes to fruition. So think about it. Even in our, in our relationships, when it's a time for you to step out and your kids have moved out of the house, it's hard to transition to a different role. It's hard to, to, to move on to a new role to play in this world. Why? Because we over-identify with the roles that we play in this world as our main source of worth, identity, and value. This is why people crater when jobs are taken from them, when the kids leave the home, when we have to step into retirement. I've seen, especially men, step into retirement and deal with depression. If I don't do this thing, then who am I? And it's, it's, we have to learn the, the hard lesson of releasing these roles and looking towards the more permanent role to, make, to, to, to draw forth worth and value in this world. That we are a part of God's kingdom. It's a beloved child of God. And this role will never fade. It will never, it will never depart from us. So what does Saul do when he sees that God is with David and not him? Well, he does what all of us do when we are dealing with someone in which we have jealousy in comparison. He sends him away, far, far away, in hopes that he doesn't come back. <laughs> uh, in verse 13, so uh, David was sent away from Saul and gave him command. Saul gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. This is lost on us, but David was sent out in very risky campaigns with not enough men. In these dangerous campaigns, perhaps Saul was hoping maybe, just maybe, he won't return. Maybe David won't return. Maybe he'll die in battle. But instead of that happening, this happened. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And with that, Saul grows more and more bitter. The seed of jealousy is now in full fruit. Eventually, David has to run for his life because of this. Because it's so obvious that Saul wants David dead. Uh, This seed of jealousy is, is in full fruit, and everyone knows it. What's interesting, though, 
is that David now at this point receives a different seed. It's not the seed of jealousy, but as David runs from his life, he gets this seed of fear. Something we don't see in David before now. We see that David now has a seed of fear and a panic. And what happens with David, it's a... What happens with David is that he receives the seed of fear, and unfortunately he's in a place where he's alone, he's isolated, and he's in need. That's a very bad combo for making good decisions. When we're alone in life, when we're isolated, when we're afraid, we're panicking, we can make some really, really bad decisions. And what this chapter of David's life will teach us is how critical it is to turn to God in our desperation. Because when David now runs, he's going to make some bad decisions. And this clear-eyed David is going to make some decisions that you and I are going to go, what was he thinking? Now, before we look at this story, we, we just need to know that there's a powerful truth that this story is going to tell us. That sometimes the most inconsequential decisions that we make have the greatest consequences. Sometimes the, the most inconsequential decisions we make have the greatest consequences. This story begins with David not acting like himself, making some questionable decisions, but these little mistakes that he makes will end up with great consequences. So David is now running from his life, running for his life from Saul, and he ends up at a door of a priest named Ahimelech. Now, Ahimelech trembled, this is in verse 1, uh, Ahimelech trembled when he met David and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? You see, David here has been like in charge of a thousand soldiers. So David just doesn't pop up by himself somewhere. You hear David before he arrives. He's like the most powerful general there in Israel. And he shows up this one day to this priest alone. And this is not computing in Ahimelech's mind. He's afraid. And rather than bringing his honesty, what we find is that David starts to bend the truth a little bit. In verse number 2, this is from 1 Samuel 21, uh, David answered Ahimelech the priest, Now the king has sent me on a mission. He's totally lying right now. The king has sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, uh, priest Ahimelech, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Now, you can imagine this priest's face of confusion. The most powerful general in the land is looking for food from me? Really? And so Ahimelech looks around and goes, I, this isn't, you know, Schlotzky's. I don't have anything. But one thing I do have, there's 12 loaves of bread that we bake and we put it in the presence of God. This is the, their practice. They call it the bread of presence. And they make this offering to God. They bake these loaves of bread and they put it on the table as an offering to God. And, and after a week, and only after a week, the priest and only the priest can eat it as if a week-old loaf of bread is a treat. Um, the priest is now torn. Um, do I uphold the tradition and the law of God? Or do I withhold this food from a hungry and powerful man who seems desperate. 
So Ahimelech, he turns to David and says, are you ceremonially clean? Because that's, that's an offering to the Lord. And he said, I'm, he gives like the most like religious uh, nonsense response. He says, when you're doing God's business, aren't you always clean? And just like that, just David's taking one step further into this deceit. And so this priest reluctantly gives David the bread of presence. And like a good soap opera, the camera shifts and slides over into the corner of the room. And there's this creepy dude back there watching it all. His name is Doeg. And he's listening to it all. In verse 7 of 1 Samuel 21, Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the, the Edomite. Saul's chief shepherd. He was in charge of Saul's uh, flocks. He was the chief shepherd. He happened to be there in that room. And he's watching and listening to everything like a, like a biblical TMZ. He's like just checking it all out, making sure that everything's documented. And so he sees that Ahimelech gives him this bread, but then David even stoops further. In verse 8, David then asks the priest, don't you have a spear or a sword here? Like, do you have any weapons? Because that's what priests are known for. I haven't brought my sword or any other weapons with me because the king's mission was so, so urgent. I had to get out there so fast, I didn't bring my sword. Do you have one? <laughs> so not only is now David like showing that he's alone and he's hungry and he doesn't have any provision, but he also came looking for a weapon. Now, in this next section, God does something so profound here, something so dramatic and powerful and beautiful. It's as if God had this next, this next situation happen so that David would wake up. So almost like he had like this sense of amnesia. Like he's not himself. And, and you know, like the voice of a loved one is known to wake someone up. I think that God had this next thing planned as if when David were to experience it, he would see clearly again. And so what happens? David is asking for a weapon. There is a weapon there, and it just so happens to be a particular sword. Check this out. In verse 9, the priest replied, The sword of Goliath. The Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, that's here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. And if you want it, if you want to take it, there's no other sword here but that one. <laughs> Out of all the places for this relic, for this symbol of God's faithfulness and power, if there any place for that to be, it happened to be the place where... David was the most desperate. It happened to be right there. Goliath's sword, the very symbol of God's victory, was there. Just think about what this meant. Like, remember, 14-year-old peach-faced David defeated Goliath. And one of the, it was actually the last thing that David said before he killed the giant was this. Listen to this. This is 1 Samuel 17. And David declared this over Goliath and over all the troops. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. It's, it's God's. This is God's battle. It's not by sword or spear that you're going to save yourself. Because God's in the battle. He's here. It's His. And He will give 
all of you into our hands. These are literally the last words that Goliath heard. The last words that the troops heard before David took his life was David declaring, God is going to fight for me. I have nothing to worry about. I don't trust in spears. I don't trust in swords. I trust in the power of God's name. And here's David now, desperate, clinging for anything, trying to take matters into his own hands. And just so happens that very sword, that very symbol is there. It's meeting them. You would expect that David would see the sword and go, all right, I'm good. I don't need the sword. I don't need this. You can keep the sword. You can keep the bread. God is going to protect me. God is my refuge. This is God's battle too. I want to trust him now. Thank you for reminding me. But unfortunately, David doesn't snap out of it. Instead, he simply says, there's no sword like it. Give it to me. And he takes that symbol, that relic of God's faithfulness and power, and continues to run. And he runs into the most unlikely place. As if you couldn't make a bad decision even worse, he takes this provision and this weapon, and he goes to seek refuge to the king of Gath. Now, if we were all Hebrews of this time, we would start laughing. I didn't hear anyone laugh at the idea of him running at the king of Gath. This is lost on us. Gath is a, is a part, is a community within the Philistines, the same group of people that David had been taking this thousand of soldiers and fighting against. Like this is the same community that David's been calling out his enemies and seeing God be victorious. Not only that, but Gath is also known for being the hometown of one particular Philistine, Goliath. <laughs> so David, so desperate, is now showing up at his enemy's doorstep with Goliath's sword and saying, do you mind if I hang out here for a while? Imagine Tom Brady with the Lombardi Trophy right now hanging out in L.A., just doing his own parade by himself. Doesn't make much sense. Can you imagine that? David is so desperate, he's not seeing clearly. He's showing up and he's there. And many scholars actually think that the only reason why David would be there is to call a truce, to work out some sort of agreement, negotiation with his enemies. That he's given up on the Israelites being his people. And so David's there, he's with the king, and the king can't make up any sense of this, and so the king, he's confused like he should be, and David becomes fearful. In verse 13, this is what David decides to do once he realizes that maybe he shouldn't have showed up there. In verse 13, David pretended to be insane in their presence. This is why we know the Bible's real. You can't make this up. David pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was, was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gates with letting saliva run down his beard. What in the world? This 15-year-old courageous warrior to this drooly madman. What transformation has happened? And the king said, I love this response. He said, 
verse 15, Am I so short of madmen that you have come to bring this guy here to carry on like this? Must he come into my house? Like, we haven't, I have enough crazy people. And so he sends David out and David leaves. I believe as much as jealousy had clouded Saul's vision, fear had clouded David's. And David is running. He's not only running from Saul, but I think also he's running from God. He's running from the sense of anointing that God had over him. Because you can imagine that David just assumed what the rest of his life would be like. If God were to anoint me, of course, this is how I would step onto the floor. This is how I'd step into this power and position. And God is in no hurry for that to happen. And so what, does, what do you do when you feel out of control? Some of us, we make bad decisions even though we know they're bad decisions because we can control that. And David is running. He's running hard and he's running far. He did everything right. He did everything right. Like, let's, let's be compassionate with him. You would think that, of course, if you do everything right, if you step out in courage, if you do this, you've earned your favor, that God's going to bless it. Doesn't seem like God's blessing this, does it? Not in his own eyes. But see, God's underneath the surface, preparing and doing things even redeeming bad decisions. So David here has made many bad decisions, and they will lead to a lot of hurt. Remember Doeg, the uh, biblical TMZ, creeper guy in the corner of the room? He was once in a community advisors. Where's, where's David? He has to be here somewhere. You, someone has had to see him. No one said anything but Doeg. Slowly you know, popped up in the crowd and said, I, I've seen him. He was in the village of Nob, and Ahimelech was there. And Ahimelech, unfortunately, Doug doesn't get the story completely right. He says, Ahimelech, he fed David, he prayed and blessed David, and he gave him weapons. And Saul burns with anger. So he calls forth not only Ahimelech, but all the priests of that village. They show up to him and and Saul just, why would you do this to my enemy? Why would you arm him? Why would you seek God for him? And this is how Ahimelech responded in verse 14. He answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? He's like, what are you talking about, your enemy? He's your, he's your son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard. He's respected in your household. Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? He's visited me before. I've prayed for him before. Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant of any of his father's or of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about the whole affair. He's trying to he's trying to break through through Saul's craziness. And sometimes it's hard to talk and convince crazy. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> he can't break through. He's like, what are you talking about? He's not your enemy. He's fighting for you. But then the king said in verse 16. Ahimelech, you're, you're going to die. You and your whole family. He turns to his guards and he says, put these men to death. All the priests, put them to death. Uh, the soldiers were too afraid. The guards were too afraid, so they wouldn't do it. So he, then he looked at Doeg and said, how about you? And on that day, Doeg killed 85 priests. But it gets worse. And Saul orders his army, you're not going to do this, you're going to do something for me. 
Go to that village. I want you to murder every man, woman, children, all the livestock. They're all going to die. So that's what happens. This entire village was murdered because Saul's unbridled jealousy and David's misguided desperation. The whole village is wiped out. Sometimes inconsequential decisions have great consequences. But as with God, these tragic moments can be redeemed just can just be redeemed by teaching us powerful lessons for a different way to live. I believe that this moment would be a wake-up call for the rest of David's life. One of the priests that were in that village, one of them escaped. Only one of them escaped. And he found his way to David. And when he found David, this is what he told David everything that had happened. He told him what had happened, what Saul had done, the troops had done. And David responded by saying, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. He doesn't blame Saul. He's like, no, 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 he's crazy. It's not my fault. David actually takes responsibility. He says, I'm responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you, he's, he's trying to kill me too, and you're going to be safe with me. We see that David here, what does he look like? He looks like a shepherd. I know you're alone. Come on, come in the flock. I'm going, to, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to defend you. I'm going to guard you. You're going to be safe with me. David would never be the same after this moment. Though he would have a long journey to the throne, get this, he has another 14 years running for his life in the desert. 14 years of being chased by Saul and Saul's descendants. 14 years in the desert. Though he would have that, he would display constant humility and courage and David learned to do the most incredible thing. He took the seed of fear that resembled Saul, and he gave it to God. He entrusted Saul to God again and again and again. David would have opportunities to kill Saul, like miraculous opportunities to kill Saul, and he gave Saul to God again and again and again. Even after Saul dies, David didn't rejoice he mourned. He wrote a dirge, this beautiful song of mourning for Saul because he learned to give his enemy to the Lord. And he took his desperation to God. Saul, on the other hand, he never learned this. He never learned what it meant to give that seed over to God. Not only in the end of his story would he have this broken heart, this broken soul, but he would have a divided kingdom and he would end up taking his own life. The seed of jealousy, the seed of fear. I want to end with three questions that this story, I think, asks us. The first question is, have you been given a seed of jealousy or fear? Life deals us with a lot of seeds and we have to be smart in how we deal with them. Saul shows us what a seed of jealousy can do to the heart and life and community. And David shows us what a seed of fear can do in us. In our panic, what we can do in panic. And our invitation with these seeds are to invite God into it. And a great way to combat both of those seeds are to pray for the people that seed represents. Rather than to, when you're 
uh, afflicted by jealousy, when you're reminded of that over and over again, the one thing you might be able to do is to bless, is to pray, is to turn to God. Where the enemy has a foothold to distort your soul, when you've learned for that to be a prompting to pray for them, becomes an incredible reminder of the power of God. Have you been dealt a seed of jealousy and fear, and have you invited God into that relationship, into that, uh, in that hardness, to give God that seed? Secondly, are you preparing yourself to step out of the role that you're in? Saul is displaying all the damage that happens when we are unwilling to step down from the role that we play in this world. He's unwilling to step out of the way and allow God to do what he, God was already going to do with David. And so much dysfunction happens because of that. So we can over-identify with so many roles that we play in this world, whether social circles, in business, in family. We are in danger when we make those roles the source of value and worth that we receive in this world. When it's solely coming from that role, we have placed our heart and our treasure in a temporal place. So for us, we're called to live with open hands, to hold on to the roles that we play loosely, knowing that all but one role is temporary, that we are beloved children of God. And if we aren't willing to release control of the roles we play in this world, Saul's life displays that it will not end well. The third question I see this story teaching us and asking us is, where do you go with your desperation? Where do you go with your desperation? David felt exposed, he was afraid, and he was alone. And just like David, we too might feel that way. David, he ran to the wrong places, began to try to take matters into his own hands. Maybe for you, maybe you're not about to go find a sword or run to, uh, to, to try to find shelter with another king, but you might feel needy and weak today. And that could send you to a lot of different places. You might chase into busyness and substances, go further into debt, run into enter- entertainment, further into that blame game. Where do you go with your desperation? Rather than running to faraway places, David's life teaches us to run to God. Whether or not it is easy to hear, this is a truth that I know the way of Jesus the most sure place, the best place for you to plant your life is, a, is in desperation for God. We don't want that. No one wants to be needy before the Lord, but it's actually the safest place to be, is to be needy to, with the Lord. Fourteen years of living in the desert would teach David the one lesson that all of us learn in deserts, which is that God is whole heartedly trustworthy. He is worthy of our trust. He does not let us down. So for those who feel in need today, I want to encourage you, take your desperation to God. Go to God with your need. He is a refuge and strength. Sometimes it's hard to feel it in the moment, but there's no safer place to be than in need before your Father in heaven. David, he was was not only a great king and a great warrior, but he was also a great psalmist. He wrote so many beautiful psalms. And some of the psalms he wrote was during these moments when he was running for his life. So I want to end with Psalm 27. Think about David's life. Think about your own life as you hear this psalm. 
Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, and it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent. He will set me upon a rock. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm going to say that again. I am confident of this. Writes David as he's running for his life, as he's hiding in caves year after year after year. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord.